My guest today is Rachel Koo, who is a cook, a writer and a presenter who started out her cooking career studying at Le Cordon Bleu. Before that, she went to an art college. So I imagine changing direction from graduating art college and then moving to cooking school must have been quite exciting. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Well, I went to one of the best art colleges in the world, Central St. Martins. So going to that was pretty awesome as well. (laughs) (laughs) And I must say, I was even more, because I had to, going to St. Martins, I had to do several tests and it was like selection, whereas going to Cordon Bleu was just about having the money. So I just had to work a lot of jobs and save up a lot of hard cash to pay for the fees to go to Cordon Bleu. So those were the entry requirements of Le Cordon Bleu. So obviously it was super exciting moving to Paris, you know, uh, being in Paris where I didn't speak French, didn't know anybody. That was pretty daunting. Um, and going to Le Cordon Bleu, um, it was it was good fun. I um, I didn't think so much about the prestige. I thought like, right, I'm getting closer to where I want to go career wise. Because for me, the whole reason of going to Le Cordon Bleu was to get into food styling, which I kind of assisted when I was on, um, when I was at art college, I assisted on some food shoots, but I couldn't, when I graduated, I couldn't get a paid job. They were all like, you've got to work for me for free. And I'm like, I've got to pay my rent. How am I supposed to do free work when I've got to pay my rent? So I ended up doing fashion PR marketing for a couple years. And then I went to Paris and thought I'll study at Cordon Bleu, do some like um, technical, get some more technical experience. Um, and then try and get back into food styling. So that was the reason of going into going to Le Cordon Bleu. And it was it was cool. We had to wear these awful chef whites, and it was awfully sweaty that summer when I studied because there was no air con. You got all the ovens on. I just remember having one of the head of pastry. He loved himself so much. He would check out his reflection with his toque, you know, the big white chef's hat, and he would always readjust it in the in in the oven mirror. So he loved himself a lot. <laughs> That's strange. I pictured it as being quite stuffy and traditional, lots of old copper pans and things, kind of old-fashioned in that way. It, it's kind of old-fashioned because the first thing we learned was how to say, we chef. So everybody is like, we chef, like being at the army. And that is the foundation of a kitchen. A professional kitchen is based on um, Escoffier, who's um, the chef who kind of developed that uh, kind of system of like, you have the head chef, the sous chef, you have the chef de partie. And and that was based on his background is the army. So that's that's the kind of background working in professional kitchens have. So you had that, you had to make sure you were always you know, looking pristine. If you were messy, that meant you, or like had a messy outfit, that meant you were a bad chef. And that, and in general, if you're messy, if your chef's whites are not white, that means you're not a very good chef. If you're a clean chef, that's that's a good sign of somebody who really knows their way around the kitchen. Sounds like they've got their priorities in the wrong place a bit there. <laughs> I don't know. There is something to be said about cleanliness and working in the kitchen and being organized because it really does help with the process of cooking and making yourself more efficient. And especially if you're in a professional kitchen, you need to be very efficient. So having things all over the place is not gonna work. So once you'd had your training, the first thing you wanted to do is go and start writing your own cookbook, wasn't it? No, 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 no. I had a lot of hustling to do in between that. Oh yeah, I'm just gonna write a cookbook. Uh, This is going back a while. This is 2006. So this is 
pre-social media. This is like blogs were around. So I had a blog. I started a blog to like my, you can actually go on my website. If you, if you have the time and patience to click back, 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 you can get to my first post, like me posting a picture of something I made at culinary school and said, oh, tasted good, but I made it the wrong way. And there's a photo. And that's why I got into blogging. But um, the cookbook thing, um, it took a while. I mean, I graduated from culinary school. Um, I had many jobs. I sold perfume. I looked after kids. I taught English. I worked in an art gallery. I did marketing, uh, like telephone marketing. I Anything to pay the bills. And then what really got my foot in the door was I managed to get a job in a culinary bookstore where we would do events for uh, writers who were launching their books and I would make the little kind of canapes from their books for the, the book signing. And so I would, I like me hustling, I'm like, hi, my name's Rachel. Do you need anybody to help you test your recipes? And kind of give them my card and like, you know, can I help out? And it was all about hustling. I mean, it, it was so like, people think it's easy peasy, everything. As even today, I'm still hustling. I'm still pitching. If you want to get somewhere in the world, you've got to like, you've got to go knock on the doors because nothing comes to you. Honestly, the majority of my jobs, and actually this chocolate series, which is out the moment, came from me pitching to Discovery Network. Like, okay, I think I, I really want to do a chocolate series and I want to explore everything around chocolate, not just the the flavor the taste but also the cultural aspect the historical aspect the psychological aspect the you know all these different aspects and why is chocolate so revered why is chocolate so loved in in our society so I kind of wanted to get underneath you know the exterior of a chocolate wrapper in that sense so all my work ever since I've been a kid I think I've been like hustling I'm like, <laughs> like, it's like, it's, it's so, so the cookbook came about because I started testing recipes on other people's cookbooks. And so I was writing, well, testing, developing uh, uh, recipes for other cookbooks and the publisher, the French publisher I was working for, they asked me, do you want to write your own cookbooks? And I said, yes. So I wrote two cookbooks in French before I wrote uh, The Little Paris Kitchen. And that book came about because I emailed several publishers in the UK say, hi, my name's Rachel. Do you have a couple of minutes? Um, I know you're really busy, but I want to pitch you some ideas. And out of those 10 emails, I got three meetings. Out of those three meetings, I got two offers and then I went with um, Michael Joseph, who are part of Penguin Random House. And that's how I got into writing um, cookbooks in the UK. And then the TV show came about because I was finishing off the Little Paris Kitchen. I was doing my pop-up restaurant in my flat. And the reason why I was doing a pop-up restaurant was I'd previously done pop-ups in Melbourne, Sydney, Buenos Aires, Berlin, London, around the world. And I knew it was a great way of testing out recipes, meeting people, but also not wasting food. Um, so I thought, right, I can only fit a table for two in my room, in my studio, <laughs> bed sit. <laughs> and so I thought, why not invite people around for lunch? They can taste the recipes from the cookbook. They'll pay, they paid a donation to cover the ingredients. They could have second helpings if they really liked it. 
And that way I could get some feedback, not waste any food and also get a little bit of money to cover the ingredients. So that was what I was doing. And at that time, I thought nobody's really doing a TV show about cooking in Paris the way I had experienced it. So I wanted to tell this story. So the story was told within the book, but I also wanted to do a, a different medium of it. So I pitched that. I, um, I had a literary agent who helped me set up meetings with production companies in the UK, met lots of production companies. It's a bit like matchmaking. You're like, do I like you? Do you like me? Da, 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 da. And I found a small indie who like, right, gotcha. We understand what your vision is. Let's film a little taster. And that's how I ended up doing TV. It's amazing to hear how far you can get with just persistence, really. I'd have thought to get a book deal, you'd have to write several books that never really got anywhere and just move up slowly. But you think if you have the right idea right from the start, you can make it work? Look, I think to have success uh, is you have to have a lot of failures. And I, I really think now I've kind of understood failure is no longer a failure if you put it in the right frame of mind. You know, if you look at failure, like, okay, I didn't succeed in the way I wanted to succeed but what can I draw with from this you know experience and how can I make it into something I learn and grow from and then you know taking that failure because I had many failures before I actually got to pitching the little Paris kitchen but because I have been practicing I've been practicing my whole life to do things you know and pitching and selling and all this stuff the, the more you do it the better you get it I mean I mean Serena Williams once said in an interview she was asked by a journalist I don't know the exact words but she was like uh, the journalist said are you ready for this grand slam or whatever and she's like I've been ready my whole life you know you just got to work at it. You know, if you are not willing, there are loads of people. I think success is a combination of many things, but it's, it's hard work, but there's loads of people who work hard. Then you've got to be willing to take the risk. So there are not so many people who are willing to take the risk because taking a risk means you potentially, or most likely, you're not going to, you're not going to get the result you, you, you want. So you're going to be disappointed. So, so you've got to be able to, to handle that disappointment. So if you're willing to work hard and, you are willing to take a risk, plus you've got a good idea, then you're, you're on a winner. What are some of the risks you've taken in your career? What's something you've really had to psych yourself up to do? Okay, so moving to Paris, not speaking the language, not knowing anyone, having only enough money to pay for the course, um, leaving a very, because I had a very well-paid PR job in fashion, fashion and, um, you know, uh, so it was luxury fashion PR job. It was great. I was well paid. My parents like pay off your student loan. Why are you going to Paris to live like a, you know, live like a student again? So that was a big risk. And then um, like I've, I used to call people. I sometimes pick up the phone and like call people. Hi, my name is Rachel. You know, the little kind of thing. Just taking those small risks. I mean, nowadays it's so easy to email. I don't think you risk anything when you email, you know, you, you can, um, there's nothing you, cause like, I don't think there's, it's pretty easy. You can just put an email together, but actually picking up the phone, it's, it's a lot harder. And sometimes it's that persistency, which will get you over the line and will set you apart from the other people. And then really embracing challenges. A lot of people living in a tiny studio of 21 square meters would have said, Oh, I can't do anything in this kitchen. I've only got two gas hobs and a toy oven. There's nothing I can do. And I was like, 
oh, well, look, you know, I'll just have to turn my whole living space into a kitchen. The fridge was in the like living room. My bed was a futon, which I had to fold back when the guests came over. Um, like the only place you couldn't eat was in the bathroom. So, you know, I just like, well, this is what I have. What can I make out of it? And then earlier this year, um, you know, the first lockdown hit, I was a week away from filming the chocolate series and that got all postponed. I was like, right, I, I have no work. I'm stuck in Sweden because I live in Sweden on me. I'm like, I can't work in the UK because this was all going to be filmed in the UK. And so I was like, what am I going to do? And I was like, right, okay. I put, I emailed, you know, Discovery and say, look, are you commissioning series? What are your constraints right now? What are the restrictions? I can put in a series together within those constraints. And I pitched mm. a series and from pitch to filming was four weeks. And I filmed a series, uh, Rachel Koo's Simple Pleasures within, well, we filmed two, less than two weeks and it was a camera guy in my mother-in-law's kitchen in the middle of nowhere, but we managed to do it. You know, it was a bit nuts. It was all a bit crazy and all higgledy-piggledy, but it's a beautiful series. It's really kind of um, just embracing those simple pleasures you can get from cooking and you can watch it on the Discovery Plus network if you want to see how, you know, what it looks like and what my mother-in-law's kitchen looks like with my styling. I had to stick up um, tile stickers onto the wall and do a bit interior design there because there was no interior stylist. So I was trying to sew something for the dishwasher and I can't sew. It's like, don't get me on the great British sewing bee. It's hopeless. So I had to use, I just used pins and I used double sticky tape to stick it on the dishwasher. So the dishwasher wasn't all white, but resourcefulness will get you in a lot of places and embracing the challenge. I think certainly in the TV industry right now, the last you know year or so with the pandemic happening, that the production companies who have been able to say, we can find a solution, just tell us what we're working with, are the ones who are off the ground, are making content. Let's talk about your new series, Rachel Koo's Chocolate. Could you tell me what you're covering in the show? And you mentioned earlier that you wanted to talk about the psychological side of chocolate, which sounds to me like something that hasn't really been touched upon before. Could you also tell me a bit about that? Yeah, so, um, I mean, it's peppered throughout the series. So there's not one particular episode. It's like one is history, one is culture. So we kind of mix it up just to make it, you know, at the end of the day, it's TV. You want people to be entertained. You want people to kind of escape a little bit when they're watching it. So, you know, this is not a hard-hitting documentary we're talking about. But there are lots of little fun facts and things you can pick up you might not have known from chocolate and if you're ever doing a pub quiz about chocolate you'll certainly win if you watch this series <laughs> so um one um uh like one of the episodes i actually meet um a writer who specializes in edible aphrodisiacs and she researched the history of chocolate and also the language and the culture and we kind of she told me about you know, from poets to writers to what London youth society was like. So we kind of explore that over an amazing chocolate tea time. Um, but then there's, uh, I remember I had the amazing opportunity to film at the Hampton Court Palace. And then we filmed when it there was nobody there, which was even, you know, oh my goodness, you have a whole palace to yourself. Pretty amazing. 
So I got to go to the Royal Chocolate Kitchens and I didn't actually know there was a Royal Chocolate Kitchen or there was even a chocolate kitchen. And the historian there, he kind of walked me through and showed me the tools they used and talked about the history uh, of how chocolate was consumed. Um, so it was really interesting kind of that. I mean, there's so many bits, there are lots of little bits of interesting facts I kind of learned along the way, as well as some amazing chocolatiers. I mean, if you're into chocolate um, and the stuff which is happening in the UK at the moment, people always think Belgium, you know, France, Switzerland, they are the chocolate places, the go-to chocolate places. Well, actually what's happening in the UK is so exciting because unlike France, Switzerland and Belgium who have this really kind of deep history of chocolate making, the UK have that kind of deep kind of confectionery chocolate making but the artisanal chocolate making got lost a little bit with the industrialization and now it's coming back in the last kind of five to ten years it's really making uh, a comeback with so many bean to bar makers or chocolatiers who are embracing their heritage I made a a chocolatier who used he studied mathematics and decided to become a chocolatier <laughs> And he's bringing his Indian heritage into chocolate making. So it's really exciting to see what's happening in the UK and show everybody that you don't need to go to Belgium or France or, or um, you know, Switzerland for amazing chocolates. There are some pretty, like, fantastic places in the UK. So, Rachel, what would you like to offer up as your Who's Flying the Plane hidden gem? Okay, so while I was filming the series and researching the series, I discovered these guys called Coco Runners. And it is a chocolate subscription service. So they scour the world for all these amazing chocolate bars. Uh, mainly they are bean to bar. So they're these chocolate makers who will source the beans. They will then roast them. They will do the whole process and create uh, chocolate bar. Now these kind of chocolate bars are like tasting a fine wine or a coffee because they go to different regions. You know, it might be in Costa Rica or Madagascar. I don't know. So you can literally travel the world through chocolate. So we can't travel that much nowadays, but I thought it's such a fun thing to kind of explore the world and the different flavors chocolate has through um, uh, like a chocolate subscription service and I really enjoy that and also understanding you can taste chocolate in a different way it's not about like wolfing down a quick you know chocolate bar or confectionery bar from the news agent it's actually you take a little square and you can do this with your friends actually you have three different bars from different areas of the world and you can all taste it and like well what notes do you taste and how does it melt in your mouth and and really experience chocolate in a different way or more like a fine wine and I think that's a fun thing to do especially if you're looking to kind of develop your palate or looking to explore the chocolate world a little bit more in depth. Rachel please could you tell us where we can watch your new chocolate series uh, how can we follow you on social media and keep up to date with what you do? So, okay, right. You can watch the chocolate series on Discovery Plus. Uh, so it's available to stream. It's really easy. Um, it's also on food, the Food Network. So you can watch it on your TV. So there are many, many options. Um, you can follow me on social media. I do have a newsletter. 
Also, what I'm really excited about or really happy about is all the recipes from the chocolate series. And there's some amazing, not just sweet recipes, but also savory recipes using chocolate. I've put together an e-cookbook, which is available to buy on my website, website. And all the proceeds are going to Women's Aid, who support women in domestic abuse environments. So you could do something great for yourself, get an amazing uh, chocolate recipe book, and you help an amazing charity too. So please go to my website and download the book. Okay, sounds great. Uh, thanks a lot for joining me, Rachel. You're welcome. I look forward to seeing your chocolate show. Thank you. If you enjoyed listening to this episode of Who's Flying the Plane, it would be much appreciated if you could give it a rating and a review on the Apple Podcast app or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And thanks a lot for listening.